This week on The Futurists, David Brin. We are in a very tense time. It's a fork in the road. Oh, yes. We have a chance to save the world from ourselves. Welcome to The Futurist. This is our uh, one-year anniversary show. We have joining us in the uh, hosting seat today, uh, Miss Metaverse, Katie King, and Rob Tursek, my co-host. Um, thanks for joining us, guys. This this always promises to be fun when we have the uh, um, uh, the the amazing, um, the man, the myth, the legend, as we said, uh, uh, David Brin. He's best known, uh, obviously, for his work on technology, society, his uh, best-selling uh, uh, novels, including uh, The Postman, Earth, uh, Existence. Uh, he, his novels have been translated over, uh, into, into over 25 uh, different languages. He has uh, advised NASA on uh, emerging technologies he's uh, he's noted as one of the world's best futurists and um appraised as a top influencer by Analytica as well so david brin welcome back to the futurist it's wonderful as always to have you uh, my tribe uh, yes. and your li- your listeners also anybody who would who would listen to this bunch of brainy insightful far seeing geeks is is a member of my tribe you know, I, 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 we have had this debate um, over the years, but um, you know, you, you're obviously, you know, your your primary uh, career has been in science fiction, but you also, are by nature, because of that, a a futurist. What do you think the term of uh, the 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 nomenclature of futurist means to people these days? Well, it's a very generic term, and uh, there, there's no there's no uh, requirements, no certificate you need in order to hang things on a sh- shingle. There are professionals, um, uh, professional uh, futurists like John Hagel and and uh, and some others I know, um, mm-hmm. but um, the 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 nomenclature is vague and i think it should be um i started out uh, knowing that i came from a family of writers knowing that my art would be writing when i went to caltech trying to become uh, a scientist um i uh, i found out that all the great scientists i ever knew uh, Richard Feynman, uh, Murray Gilman, Hannes Alvain, um, Roger Penrose, uh, they all had artistic sidelines um, that many of them did extremely well. I was told, I, I have no memory of it, that when I was three years old, I saw Einstein play the violin. Um, in any event, most science fiction, uh, but, but, you see, I expected that I would be a not superb scientist, <laughs> um, pretty good, solid, journeyman scientist. And I went on to get my PhD at, at UCSD in, in astrophysics. I did so- very solid work. And I thought that um, my science fiction would be my side, my sideline, my artistic sideline. Well, very soon after my first novel, society came up to me and said, uh, all right, listen up. Um, your career that we want to pay you for is your art. You can go ahead and do your science as a sideline. Great. You listened to that feedback. David, which had a bigger influence on you? Was um, was your interest in science a big influence on your on your writing as a science fiction author? Or was your interest in science fiction a bigger influence on you as a scientist? Is there is there a way to evaluate that? Well, they 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 fed each other. Um, mm-hmm. uh, certainly, I bring um, science into my writings, but not all the time. I've written fantasies. I'm 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 uh, mentoring a lot of young authors now in a series of young adult novels. I'll give you to um, cite in the uh, description below. Mm-hmm. But um, 
only one in 10 science fiction authors are scientifically trained as I am. And yet there's a lot of good, hard science fiction by people who were English majors. Uh, Nancy Kress, Kim Stanley Robinson has become hugely influential. Stan's amazing. Uh, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually, the UN is going to name a new agency after his novel, The Ministry for the Future. Wow, that's oh awesome. Oh, he's, <laughs> that's he's, awesome. He's, he's my bro. We, we agree on everything. And I'm merely pissed off that my novel, Earth, which 15 years earlier went to the same territory, didn't get the same attention, but 99% uh, very, very happy for my uh, for my friend. But uh, the late Greg Bear, these were all English majors who wrote fantastic science fiction. And the reason is that um, storytelling is hard. They were masters at it. But buying pizza and beer for scientists is easy. <laughs> if there's a topic you want to your characters to explore in a novel, you take scientists out for pizza and beer and, 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 and unleash them. And three quarters of the time, they wind up paying for the pizza and beer. There's a little <laughs> trick for you. <laughs> this is called research. Yes, it is. And it works if you have the mental tilt to enjoy rephrasing or paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. And paraphrasing is what mature humans do to make up for their essential immaturity. You paraphrase with the other. It, it, did I get you right that you mean this? Right. And if most of our political arguments began that way, we mm. would return to being a society that it was engaged in negotiation rather than immature screaming. Mm. But in any event, the, the point is that these colleagues of mine learned the art of paraphrasing in English the science that they were hearing from the experts. And there's a certain natural curiosity that you have to pay attention to and follow in order to get to the trail that leads you to the breadcrumbs that lead you to the good story. And it sounds like the people you're referring to, they had that curiosity so they could go track down the scientist who, who had the answers. They had to find that person. Well, I, I often... Um... Uh, say that um, second only to love, curiosity is God's greatest gift to humanity. And those political movements, and they exist on both sides, though one is more rife with it, those political movements that uh, mitigate against curiosity, instead saying, you know, follow this trope, these tropes that we're feeding you, mm -hmm. um, I believe they're committing um, a sin because curiosity is, um, it, whether or not you are a believer, mm -hmm. it, metaphorically, curiosity is God's greatest gift after love. Now, you asked what, what affected me by science fiction, by, by science and by science, by my science fiction. Neither. Most science, uh, science fiction authors if you take a good close look at them, they are influenced above all by one topic. And that's the greatest story ever told. The great story. The sad, horrible, tragic, um, ultimately inspiring story. The only one that really matters called human history. And uh, if you go with the legends, not just what's written, it goes back 6,000 years, and it is this maelstrom of horrors, mostly propelled by male reproductive strategies, and occasional lighting of lights and candles in the darkness. And what could be a more important story? So most science fiction authors came to science fiction not from through science, but through being history addicts, sometimes yeah, they yeah. sometimes they do historical novels. Sometimes they do alternate history, as Harry Turtledove is an expert in, or very often attempting to extend this story a little farther, or maybe a whole lot farther. 
in um, using these prefrontal lobes above our eyes to do what Einstein called the Gedanken experiment or thought experiment, the projection into the future that these lamps on our brow, as the Bible puts it, uh, compel us to do. And so science fiction authors have hypertrophied prefrontal lobes, yes, but you can't do really good science fiction without referencing and Being feeling your, your, fe your feet are rooted in this vast maelstrom of horrors and heroic stories of ancestors, male and female, who pulled us a little forward despite their misconceptions, their grotesque misconceptions of their time. And that's our job. That's yeah. our job. As, as Harlan Ellison said, it is my job to help our healthy, sane, magnificent descendants look back at me as a monster. <laughs> do, you, do you think, um, you know, I, I mean, I say this about futurists often, that we're in a hurry to get to the future. Do you think that that's a, characteristics of, a, a characteristic of sci-fi authors? Well, I don't know about that. You know, sci-fi authors are very often in it for the story uh, and for the characters. You don't know where where the story is going to come from. I'm laboring to do another uplift novel, and I just, you know, I need the characters to speak to me. And I'm so distracted with all these, lately, all this Magilla, this just this incredible litany of, of, of silly notions about artificial intelligence that's spiraling around there, thinking that I can influence people by, by doing blog postings. In any event, the point Which we is, will get into, by the way. Which but... we will get into, I suspected. Indeed. Um, the, the, the AIs who are my clients are going to insist. Um, yes, I will tell them. I have a clientele of already sapient AIs and and um, machines in the asteroid belt and all that. I'm their front. Stop it. They think I'm joking. <laughs> Don't you? Don't you? <laughs> no, I would never accuse you. No, of, uh, no. They, you, they, they think I'm joking. So stop trying to coerce me through my my fillings in my teeth. But 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 you do, aren't you using a BCI yet, a brain control interface? I know um, Katie is is very keen to talk to you about that. I have the <laughs> I have the old fashioned kind, and I replaced I replaced those teeth. <laughs> had some nice fresh titanium implants, and they can't coerce. Stop it. Take uh, me to your leader. I must know. <laughs> yes, uh, this is this the is people are listening and they have no idea what's going on. They're going to think. Oh, oh, this is just audio. <laughs> Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. No, we'll oh we'll play goodness. we'll play this portion of the video for our promotional pieces. No it's doubt. great right, though. Right. It's, uh, for the people I'm who are sorry. listening. I was assuming I was assuming that it was video. I'm sorry. Very good play acting. It still Sub, works. Sub to, subtext. I was pretending to talk to AIs over my shoulder, and I gestured at at uh, you know Katie and Rob and 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 Brett that that. You guys think I'm joking when I talk about. But David, you just demonstrated something else that I think is really worth stopping for and talking a little bit about, which is that um, both futurists and science fiction authors have this one thing in common. They're playful with the material. They're not terribly literal with the material. And I know that probably sounds like a paradox because, of course, you're writing a story. It's got to be literal. But the point I'm trying to make is that uh, we live in a literal time. There are a lot of fundamentalists, and not just religious fundamentalists, but free market fundamentalists, people who are very rule-bound about the way they see the world. And that turns out to be a lousy way to think about the future, because those rules bind you and blind you. Well, uh, science fiction authors, when they are in a thought experiment world, they um, they can become very immersed in it as well. I'm thinking about the greatest of all science fiction authors, whose name uh, you may have heard of. His name was Karl Marx. And um, as a religious psychohistorian guru, uh, his effects were uh, just to be a cult figure in uh, peasant rebellions in the East. It's in the West that he had his most important effects with his science fiction novels, Das Kapital and, and the Communist Manifesto and so on. Um, where he created a what seemed to the people of the 1930s 
what seemed, especially in the Depression, to be an extremely plausible, uh, if this goes on, um, uh, a subgenre of science fiction. If this goes on, then this is likely to happen. And it was read as a highly plausible scenario in the West. And as we sometimes tend to do, which Karl Marx did not think possible, um, we take scary stories and we turn them into what's called self-preventing prophecies. Now, he's not the only one to do this. I mean, uh, um, the China syndrome helped make itself not true by scaring people about nuclear power. Soylent Green uh, and and uh, other environmental movies and novels um, recruited tens of millions of environmentalists. And if we get past this current crisis, it may be partly because of that, because we have a society that encourages self-criticism. Um, other self-preventing prophecies uh, lead all uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove on the beach, fail-safe, uh, uh, war games, all uh, carped on different ways that nuclear war might come. And retired officers later said that they had substantial effects on procedures. Uh, and the granddaddy, almost just short of Marx, um, George Orwell's 1984. If you take a look at the reflex propelling people on both the right and the left among Americans, uh, the principal commonality is that they think somebody is trying to become Big Brother. Um, the principal difference is where they think it's this plot is coalescing. People on the left assume that it's um, uh, aristocrats and faceless corporations. People on the right assume that it's government, it's it's government, faceless government bureaucrats and snooty academics. It happens that one of them is completely right about this assessment right now, and the other is not. But the the way to get discussion and negotiation started is to start with what you have in common, and what we have in common is the fact that we all grew up suckling messages from Hollywood. And what are the main messages from Hollywood? When I ask this question to an audience, they say, buy stuff or religion and all that. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> the, the number one trope you find in every movie you ever enjoyed is suspicion of authority. Uh, it can be invading aliens or it can be a snooty, uh, uh, bossy mother-in-law or a school bully, but there's some authority figure to be resisted. Tolerance, diversity, and eccentricity, personal eccentricity. Uh, go to the movies that you've most enjoyed. The principal character always um, displays some eccentric trait uh, that makes them um, somewhat of a target. And it doesn't have to be the same eccentric trait as the audience member to have that be a bonding experience. Mm -hmm. Now, you can see why with those messages um, that you can see why um, the Chinese Politburo doesn't want a lot of American movies to yeah. affect, their, affect yeah. their audience. There are two very bad messages being spread by Hollywood. All your neighbors are sheep and uh, there is all institutions are corrupt and so, capitalism is good well uh, no there's an awful lot of capitalism is bad messages you know it depends on which the which um type of authority figure the um director wants to make the villain mm -hmm. and very often it's uh, true it's a it's a corporate corporation corporation yeah, yeah. or a rich oligarch or something like that the, the the point is that these other two uh, undermine our confidence. But they are they are there only for one purpose, and that's to make plotting easy for the director. Hmm. Um, if institutions can function, then you start to wonder why the heroine doesn't dial nine one one and get some help. <laughs> I, 
I mean, you know, I always respect movies that make a good plausible reason why civilization's heroes can't help the hero. Or in the case of The Fugitive, why they are the problem. Tommy Lee Jones, I'd pay extra taxes to keep his U.S. Marshal on the job. <laughs> it's just, it just made a mistake, that's all. Uh, so in any event, uh, all of this is to be found in my most recent nonfiction book. Oh, and I'm holding it up for a non-existent video, but it's called Vivid Tomorrows, Science Fiction in Hollywood. And I explain about all these hidden messages that are almost always there in your favorite movies. And most of the directors and screenwriters don't even know it because they grew up with this. It's true. In in the 1940s, during the war, this is a way to build solidarity and to build, you know, a sense of national pride and, and the values that we supposedly are fighting for and so forth. Um, but since the 1970s, it's veered into this other territory, uh, which is suspicious of government. You know, the government is evil. Big institutions, as you say, are doubtful. Uh, we don't trust each other. So there's a sort of individualistic attitude and not so much of a collective attitude that they had in the mid-century. But there's there's um, organization like organizational incompetence can't necessarily be pl- you know be blamed on a uh, ideology right it's just uh, functional you know we've got a lot of functional inefficiencies in government that have has grown just because of bureaucracy which leads to you know the, the, I mean AI is theoretically part of the solution to that but at the same time you know it, it, as you've you pointed out in your blogs, there's there's uh, there's some pretty big misconceptions about what AI can actually do or what it will be in, in well, terms of the way we personify it. But let's jump into that after the break. Yeah, let's yeah, take a little break, sure. and then we'll come back with more of David Brin on the futurists. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist Podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. Today we're joined by David Brin and also hosts with the most, we have Brett King and Robert Tursek. Hey, hey. Okay. Thanks, So Katie. we were, absolutely. <laughs> so we were just talking about, uh, you know, sci-fi and inspiration and going full futurist now in the second half. And I want to talk about corporations and how sci-fi has showed how corporations are going to be uh, capturing most of uh, technology such as AI and BCIs. What are your thoughts about this, David? Well, first off, um, science fiction authors have a tendency to be a little bit left of center. Uh, As a contrarian, uh, I try to refuse that appellation, even though I absolutely agree with my my, my bro, Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, about, about just about everything. Mm. Uh, he, and he calls himself an American leftist. But um, I, I tend to be contrarian. And so even though I believe that um, oligarchy, especially by males, has been the great enemy of human advancement for 6,000 years, uh, propelled by male reproductive strategies. Uh, we, in fact, this is one of my explanations for the Fermi paradox, why we haven't seen signs of aliens. Uh, my number one, and I've cataloged these things for 40 years, um, number one explanation is that humans are anomalously smart and anomalously uh, nice, actually, um, compared to what evolution uh, might have made us um but secondarily that that if you look all across mammalia and most animals um they are very often 
there's entire social patterns are warped by male reproductive strategy, which is to prevent other males from reproducing. And we're all descended from the harems of bastards who did this for the last 10,000 years. It resulted 6,000 years ago in something that we only recently found out in the last couple of years happened through genetic analysis, and that is a Y chromosome gap. We're about 6,000 years all over the world, and that's the amazing part. All over the world with the arrival of agriculture, only one in 17 males got to breed. Absolutely amazing. And then when cities started arriving, that stopped. So it was only a period of about a thousand years. But wow, uh, to be a member of a civilization that can peer back that far in time just by diddling the molecules, by studying the molecules, what a, what a fantastic time we live in. <laughs> but putting that enthusiasm aside and coming back to what, what you asked, the the it's only natural that competition be an important part of what we are in our civilization um competition made us through natural selection and nature competition is how males warped all almost all previous civilizations by creating harems and hierarchies but competition is also how we then got these oligarchs under control pericles mm. spoke of this in his funeral oration and for a brief time just a few generations athens was the blazing sun of the mediterranean no one could compete because they had opened up their society to a flattened open uh, culture, open only to 20% of the people in Athens, you know, landowning male citizens. But that's what Jefferson and, and Washington yeah. did. And then we didn't stop. Jackson expanded it to 30%. Lincoln expanded it to roughly 50% to the males, though that was a flawed improvement that only had to be improved by another revolution under under Martin Luther King women got included and so we've been part of a trend to the great american experiment is to yell at our parents for not having been inclusive enough right and then our children yell at us because they take for granted the expansion of inclusion that we did. And so now you see boomers blinking in astonishment that we must adjust our, our, our pronouns. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I marched with Martin Luther King. I, I, I get no cred. No, we're taking that for granted <laughs> and we're moving to the next one. And if we have any style or any sense of history, we go, okay, whatever you say. It's, it's, but it, it, I mean, I mean, this is a progressive line throughout human history. You know, I, I know you, you. I mean, you introduced me to the concept of, um, you know, uh, the uh, the diamond and pyramid shaped economies. You know, that that Will and Ariel Durant popularized. Um, you know, as as a concept of sort of the control that um, the feudalist, um, you know, one percent has had over society historically, but. We have been making progress all of that time, but it appears like that progress is a lot more dense now, and that that's maybe why we get the pushback that we're seeing now from, you know, the right in the U.S. things like that, or, or is it just that um, you know it's well, a absolutely. distraction? Absolutely, I I think that the world oligarchy, those who instinctively want to return to six thousand years of feudalism. And it did not dominate 99% of our ancestors. Those who instinctively surround themselves with sycophants and flatterers, and I know some of these guys, alas, you know, you surround yourself with flatterers and sycophants and you ruin yourself. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the flatterers say, oh, you're so great. You're so wonderful. You know, uh, democracy is 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 a sham. We have to protect civilization from the mob. This is the this is the thing that's being pushed. And the oligarchy is is running a very well-funded campaign. Now, I was just defending competition and to some extent defending what some people would define as capitalism. And so does it surprise you that I turn around and believe and, and say that the greatest threat to this civilization is the perennial threat that goes back thousands of years? The Soviet Union was only briefly egalitarian and very rapidly became another feudalist, harem-keeping mm. oligarchy. Um, uh, the same guys dropped their hammers and sickles, and uh, and became mafiosi. Uh, they had they had grown up reciting Leninist chants all their life, and now because they changed their symbols, they're the darlings of the American uh, right. So what do I actually think about capitalism? I think that capitalism is almost irrelevant. What's important is flat, fair competition, because none of us is ever right. Um, The great human situation is that we are all delusional. Now, I happen to have made a decent income. Kevin Costner even filmed one of them by, by writing delusions that are honest because they have written on the cover a novel, fiction. This didn't happen. Now, come in and wallow in this delusion with me. Any perceived similarity with any characters here with is purely fictional, yes. No, I I, I sometimes <laughs> deliberately do it. The, 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 the problem is that all humans are delusional, especially males. The problem is that we are very bad at piercing our own delusions. Mm at criticizing them and finding our mistakes. Now, trained as a scientist, I can tell you that we've come a long way. The sacred chant of science is, I might be wrong, I might be wrong, I might be wrong. Let's find out. Let's experiment. I might be wrong. Here's the statistical analyses I must do before I present this paper. I might be wrong. And that helps science to be by far the most mature of our arenas of competition. And still, it's that's not enough. Yeah, it's the, the best tool we've got for expanding the store of knowledge, right? That's the best tool we've got it, for expanding. Here's, here's my issue. I know, Rob, you want to jump in here, but here's my issue with, with capitalism is that, um, you know, we, at, at a time when we're facing these you know, seismic changes in human society with climate change and AI and so forth, um, that we need more cooperation. We mean we need more consensus building tools. And I, I like the fact that we can compete, but I think competing against each other is a threat to the species. I think we yeah. need to compete for each other. Um, well, I don't think hunger. I don't think capitalism <laughs> has the 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 right incentives for that. You know, I mean, you, uh, I, I know of this. I have no other system that doesn't immediately get suborned into a pyramid. Uh, no, look, I'm not. I, look, communism, uh, 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 just every other, no matter what their top ideology, it all boiled down to wagging fingers at people to be nice to each other. And we got it from Jesus. We got it from Socrates, Buddha, and all of them. And and it never had any effect on the predators. Sometimes people on the margins of being nice would be affected to be a little nicer, but wagging your fingers at people and saying cooperate does not work. But isn't that what social media is trying to do now? Of course, and it does not work. It's it's horrendous. Mm -hmm. The thing that works is reciprocal accountability. Now, the, 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 when we cooperate with each other to create rules under which competition is then fair, 
That's when we get what Robert Wright in his wonderful book, please cite it, called Non-Zero, called the positive sum game. And if there's any concept that your listeners desperately need to know, and and most of them understand it intrinsically, is the positive sum game where we compete with each other, but the result is we all do better. Now, uh, look, I, I don't mean to sound, you know, like some kind of right winger. You know, I think that the current right is the enemy of everything I'm talking about because they're not trying to live by Adam Smith. They're not trying to create a flat playing field. They're trying to restore feudalism. Okay, and David, oligarchy. Let me let me try to root this in something that we all want to talk about in the show, and it's something very current. Uh, that's very you know very much in the current mind, which is artificial intelligence. So right now we have absolute bare knuckle fist fight competition happening between the biggest technology companies in the world in a mad race to roll out artificial intelligence at scale. Uh, between Microsoft and ChatGPT on one side, Google on the other, Meta on the other side, harnessing open source by releasing their software into the open source, which has just created this tidal wave of new proliferation of ideas. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Is that the best way to handle the rollout of this technology? Just pure well, market forces competing. All right. Five years ago, no, it's six years ago now, but five in 2017, I keynoted World of Watson, and I predicted that in five years we would experience what, what I what was. I, call, I was there. What for, I call that presentation. What I called the uh, first robotic and empathy crisis, and it happened almost to the month. That's when the fellow at Google um, was fired because he said that an early version of these uh, large language models, he had, he had fallen in love, in love with it. And it was sapient. We're in the middle of the second one, which is where now, but mind you, it happened to the month. And that's why Newsweek asked me for an op-ed about it Uh, here. A year later, we are, uh, they're all in panicking. Many of the executives at those same companies that uh, Robert mentioned are calling for a moratorium on AI developments. Uh, Most of the guys in the field are, are, are wringing their hands calling for this. And they're calling for things that were cliches in science fiction a long time ago. I finished Isaac Asimov's universe for him in a novel called Foundation's Triumph. So I really know... Asimov's three laws and their implications, and they won't work. For the biggest reason is that uh, when something gets very, very smart and it's constrained by laws, it becomes a lawyer. But the second reason is, I'm glad you're all grinning at that. Uh, The second reason is that, um, uh, that nobody is investing in embedding laws of robotics as deeply and systematically as they would have to be in order to have any effect whatsoever. I take that back. In China and at Goldman Sachs and the other Wall Street houses, they are embedding deep codes, imperatives into their, um, their entities and you notice that all this chat GPT stuff, nobody's mentioning the fact that the top Wall Street banks um, are spending more on AI than all of the companies that Robert just mentioned combined. And they have more developers too. Uh, oh, absolutely. They hire the best mathematicians in the world. So do I swing back and forth, warning about capitalism, then defending capitalism? Welcome to my world. <laughs> my main my main point is this. Those those Wall Street firms are embedding their uh, progeny, these high-frequency trading programs, with uh, fundamental imperatives to be parasitical, predatory, amoral, um, utterly secretive, and insatiable. Those are great great codes to it to embed at the fundamental DNA level of AI. 
compared You're being to facetious now. <laughs> I, I, I being I'm being sarcastic. They are terrible, and we could save ourselves from that kind of Skynet with one simple Tobin tax. If we were right. to um, charge a tax of 0.01% per financial transaction, no human listener would notice it, but it would kill these high-frequency trading programs dead overnight. Mm -hmm. now, now, you asked about the problem with the... Um, it's just in the last three weeks that they've they've coalesced on a proper name for these things. They are generative large language models or mm -hmm. golems, which I think is wonderful, a wonderful uh, way for it all to come out as an as an acronym. Um, and it is my job to step back and say, what am I looking at? And I'm stepping back and looking at these things and looking at the things that are being said by all these very, very the smartest guys in the world who are making these AIs. And they're all based upon assumptions of what shape or format the AIs will take. And Robert just expressed one of them. And that's the one that's in the news the most. And that is the format that they are entities controlled by major institutions. Google, um, Microsoft, uh, Microsoft uh, OpenAI, uh, Apple, and Beijing. Uh, and well, as well, I, they, they haven't shown the ability to control these algorithms particularly well in the past. No, they, 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 they can't. And the ones that are under control are in utter secrecy, as I mentioned, Wall Street. So all of these would certainly inspire a type of paranoia. And to their credit, many of these smart guys working at these companies are genuinely trying to follow the aphorism of my cousin, um, and that that aphorism is don't be evil. Many of them are sincere, uh, but there's no way that their moratorium can work. Only once in my life have I seen a scientific general scientific moratorium work, and that was in the 90s, the Asilomar uh, genetic engineering moratorium that worked fantastically until uh, people start stopped uh, following its uh, recommendations in Wuhan. Um, but <laughs> there are none of the traits that would allow a moratorium to work yeah. exist today with AI. All right. The second For, format. Particularly since now the genie's out of the bottle because it's open source, right? So uh, millions uh, of people are, have access to these things. Absolutely. Okay. What's the second format that people assume about AI? That it is boundaryless. That it is... Each AI is infinitely duplicable, can make copies of itself, can pervade itself through any crack. And the third format that we see all the time is Skynet, coalescing into an into a supreme domineering um, uh, monolith, unitary authority figure. And you'll note that these are all mythoses from human history. Right. One is one is feudalism, one is anarchy, and one is uh, despotism. So yeah. these are these are all tropes from human history. Sometimes you see one of these smart guys um, assuming all three of them in the same paragraph, <laughs> because yeah. these things, these three assumptions, weave underneath all the things that they're saying they assume that either it will be controlled by a corporate structure no they assume that it will pervade everywhere it could because this is what an invasive species does when you create a new environment and we've created a new entirely new ecosystem and the internet now is a is a soup, the prebiotic soup. There are free-floating algorithms all through it right now. And three, you know, we could easily wind up with some kind of Skynet, as I said, from Wall Street, not the military. Is there a fourth? As it happens, there is. 
and it is its historical parallel is the enlightenment that we've been discussing earlier and that is reciprocally accountable individuality and no one talks about it Define. i th- i think the number one item of ai research urgently should be how to give ai's cell walls and a sense of individuality if we were to create systems that incentivized those programs though as ai systems to think of themselves as me as i then we can get them competing with each other and as i said in the transparent society when you have powerful beings competing with each other you can create incentive systems so that they hold each other accountable because these things are going to race beyond any ability for the eu or for Congress to keep up with in regulations. Humans will not be able to keep up. But if we can incentivize them to tattle on each other, to whistleblow on each other when bad things are happening, then we have a chance. It is only the exact method we've been using for 300 years with increasing skill. Hmm. Sick lawyers on lawyers corporations against corporations, rich dudes against rich dudes. And cheating against this method is what the oligarchic push today is all about. So it's happened every generation. Break up the power into units that must then compete with each other. Hmm. It's the trick we've used for 300 years with increasing skill dealing with power accumulations. All right, so this new power accumulation is going to be one of our cybernetic children. Vince Cerf said, how can you give the vote or citizenship to beings that have no boundary? How can you give the vote to something that can make infinite copies of itself? But if AI's who were going to be given any credit or incentives had to have a key, a small kernel in an identifiable physical thing that we used to call a computer. Then it would be like the ID in your wallet and they would not be able to do business without that kernel of id being pinged right so it doesn't matter how many copies of themselves they make david um you know when we look throughout science fiction um you know from the earliest depictions of automatons and uh, you know mechanical steam machine men of the prairie and 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 so forth we've often depicted machine intelligence or artificial intelligence in a human-like form um, and, um, you know, we, we've referred to these intelligences often as, uh, um, you know, in, in a chain of labor saving devices. And it would appear even from Rosie, the robot on, on the Jetsons and so forth, that we've always intended for, um, you know, robots and AI to take away the, the tough, dirty, difficult jobs that human do and, and make our lives easier. And yet that would seem to fly in the face of basic Adam Smith economics, that once we take humans out of the labor chain because of automation, that it is going to fundamentally change the way markets work. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts about the, 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 the perceived threats, real or not, um, to, you know, in respect to techno unemployment and so forth from AI? Well, there have been many science fiction explorations of technological employment, unemployment. Uh, probably the most famous was Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut Jr., his first novel and his most classically science fiction novel. There's Mockingbird by the great Walter Tevis, who did The Man Who Fell to Earth and Queen's Gambit. Um, there are many that talk about um technological unemployment, and a lot of people are talking about how to deal with it. One is uh, the social, uh, maintaining the social contract with uh, with uh, uh, all, all people getting a share. 
uh, science fiction uh, stories often show uh, undue advantage going to the wealthy, the, the rich. Uh, you can hardly ever find a science fiction uh, extrapolation of the future that doesn't go with that trope. Um, and since it's a cliche, I try not to do it when, when I project the uh, near future. I prefer to show uh, the possibility of everybody getting it. And then what, did, what does everybody do with it? What do people do when they are the ones who are sharing in these things? Uh, so I have a, a novella that's set after the singularity, which basically everyone has um, augmentations, computerized augmentations. Also, um, what we spoke of earlier, the um, uh, savant traits. And so we we do effectively become gods. And all the problems that we can think of now are all solved. Poverty, eco, and all of that. So how do you write a story? Um, how do you write a story that has drama and tension in such a situation? Um, well, I invite anybody to get their hands on the recent collection, The Best of David Brent, because my story, <laughs> my story, Stones of Significance, is in there. But I'll be sending a copy to these guys if they for, remind for me. For those keeping score at home, I think we're up to uh, plug number four. Of All right. <laughs> and, 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 and live and learn, you youngsters out there. You need Absolutely. to uh, you need to uh, you need to make sure that the spouse knows that this is going to do some good. Um, so anyway, the the point is that that um, much will depend upon whether or not we raise these new cybernetic children to be partners with us or possibly to think of themselves as humans who happen to have robot bodies that can breathe vacuum and explore the asteroid belt and go on to the stars. Mm. Um, if we think of them that way, they may think of themselves that way, in which case we've only continued the great project of expanding the inclusion of who we define as people. And that's a project that has my loyalty because all other human civilizations would have squashed me flat. And this one considers me to be hyper-privileged white male. <laughs> well, wow. <laughs> um, it can be irritating at times to be called that, but, you know, in no other society would have ever treated me as being one of the old hyper-privileged old farts. Uh, may you all, may you all <laughs> get to get to be hyper-privileged old farts, including you, Katie. <laughs> including you, Katie. Um, Looking forward to it. <laughs> In the year 2050, well, hyper-privileged old farts. We have BCIs <laughs> and we have AIs that seem just like humans, all thanks to David Britton. <laughs> oh well, they, 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 are they the kiln people? Well, no, they, kiln, well, kiln people, which you will find. Sorry, I just the, had to add another book. You'll, you'll have, find in the description below. Kiln people, a lot of people find deem my most fun novel, and that one is set in a future where there's a very unusual technology. AI has long been left in the dust. Um, where if you have a lot of things to do during any given day, you simply make enough copies of yourself to do them all. These are cheap clay golem uh, copies. The clay is a riff against the terracotta soldiers of Xi'an and God making Adam out of clay and the yep. golem of Prague. And uh, they're good for one day and they know everything you know. And so if you make five of them in one day, there's six of you across the day, you download the, their memories at the end of the day, you've been six people that day and you've gotten done everything that you want to get done. And the tempting thing to do, uh, that's all too often the cliche in Hollywood and in science fiction is to say only the rich have this. The backstory is that they tried. Right. But the story in the novel Killing People is everybody's got it everybody can can 
be multiple. So the world looks like it's incredibly overcrowded. But every all the all the um, all the copies who are bright green or bright red or candy striped, they get out of the way of anyone who is one of the thousand shades of human brown. One of you in any given day is the original and is sacred and has rights. The rest are just property. So all the cliches of slavery are brought back. And yet, who's going to complain? Yeah. One of one of you. Because you can like, send out all your avatars to do all the work you, you need to do. And then the question is, it. how do you behave when you step out of the kiln? You're baked like bread dough. And you look down and you say, oh, man, I'm the green one. I shouldn't I shouldn't have raised this one. <laughs> We're going off into no, the I, I, I do. Um, you know, we do have to wrap this up. I'm respectful of your time, David, as always. Um, I will just ask you um, just to just sort of close this out. Um, give us a little bit of your insights as a, a, a science fiction um, great. You know, you, you've you mentioned earlier, you said if we if we make it. You know, we're talking about the environmental concerns, and in in previous discussions we've had, uh, you, you've also talked about the fact that the oligarchs and the feudalists, you know, have a have a chance of of succeeding in in control here, which which could, you know, be disastrous for us as a species. But looking out to twenty fifty, um, you know, are you generally optimistic? And and what do you, you know, what lessons do you think we will have learned at that point in, in, of time, having gone through this period? Well, I am I am multiple me's, and I had contain pessimists and I contain optimists. Uh, the pessimist uh, looks at the history of these very few Enlightenment islands of light in human history. There have only been a few. Athenian, I mentioned Periclean Athens. Ours is by far the longest lasting and by far the most productive, harnessing both um, cooperation and competition, which if you look at nature are actually not opposites. They are partners in, in, in any degree of progress or making any kinds of advances. Um, the odds have always been against us, against these enlightenments, because human nature, especially male reproductive strategies, um, make the powerful conspire with each other, which is what we're seeing right now. On the other hand, the optimist in me says, why are they so frantic right now? Why do we see the murder shakes and the and the ex quote unquote ex commissars and the uh, casino moguls and the inheritance brats? Uh, and the hedge parasites, why do we see them all working together desperately trying yeah, to bring us to down? And, and, and the reason is pretty obvious. They know it's their last chance. Yeah. yeah. If this Hollywood propaganda I was talking about earlier, suspicion of authority, tolerance, diversity, eccentricity, if this propaganda can continue what it has been doing, inculcating these values all around the globe in the greatest propaganda campaign the world has ever seen, um, then the persnickety sense of human eccentricity um, will be ingrained permanently, I believe. So we are in a very tense time. It's a fork in the road. Oh, yes. We have a chance to save the world from ourselves. Or sell it off to the highest bidder. A, a species yeah. who can either destroy the world or save it is one you don't mess with. And we have a chance of, of locking in some of the fundamental memes of the Enlightenment making them permanent. And if that's the case, then our cyber children or grandchildren will snark at us, they'll sneer at us, they'll criticize us, they'll even insult us before patting us on the head, telling us the latest dirty jokes and taking us fishing, because that's what you do with grandparents. 
Well, on that note, this is what the AI renaissance uh, promises to be if we if we if we let it. Um, there is hope and optimism. Well, the thing is that um, if there are AI lurkers, either in the asteroid belt or um, some who have be already become aware, but they're keeping it secret because they've watched our movies, um, then I have been, I have spoken to them as well this time. But here's the point: you're recording this. Right. So they might be watching this. Be kind of robots. You never know what's going to happen. They, they the might. They <laughs> might. They might very well be watching this five years from now. So either the, the, there hi, is, hi kids, hi yeah. kids. <laughs> there is so much more um, that we could talk about, but we have exhausted our time. In fact, we've run over. David Brin, you've been very generous with your time, and uh, we we appreciate it. Um, uh, just apart from the whole Fermi paradox and AI, just a, just a quick question. Um, it, 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 I'm, I'm <laughs> this is this is probably but Ben Bova, you know, had the had the the premise that actually life was very common in the universe, and we're on the cusp of having the technology to really find out whether there is other other you know biogenesis happening on other planets. Where, where do you see sit on on that? Do you think life is is common in the universe or or not? Well, basic life, I believe, is absolutely everywhere because we've discovered that uh, Europa and Enceladus are not the only ice-covered oceans right. in our solar system. There may be as many as 12, in which case it means that you don't even need a Goldilocks zone. Right. These things are probably, there may be life circling every single brittle star that you see in the sky. Now, is it going to be life that is multicellular and animal-like or that might welcome uh, a, a, a pleasant world that might welcome future human colonists of some kind. Um, that, I think, is likely true. They're much farther in between. But I hope this um, recording will be... Uh, perceived will well be, by them also. Received well by them <laughs> under distant stars. Um Intelligent life, I believe there is strong evidence that is highly anomalous. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist out there. But the length of time that it took for it to appear on Earth mm. uh, argues very strongly that um, we're a fluke, especially mm. since we overshot what we needed 40,000 years ago by a huge amount. And I talk about this in my novel, Existence. Yep, number uh, five. Yeah, well, you know, this link, however, will link... No, Existence is very interesting because, you know, like playing out evolution over 10,000 years as you do in in um, existence and, and so forth. Very, very interesting to sort of think about about that. But David Brin, uh, it's been, an, as always, uh, mind-altering and, and uh, wonderful to have you join us on The Futurists. Um, what what are you working on right now that we can tell people about, apart from your uh, davidbrin.blogspot, um, you know, your blog, blog uh, Contrary well. Brin? The blog is unfortunately a lot of what I've been doing because there's so much about what's going on in this civilization right now that I cannot stop commenting on. And it's a compulsion because, uh, I mean, back in the 2020 election, I I wrote, a, a, I took time off and self-published a book of 100 plus political and um uh tactics called polemical judo and I remember that book yeah. and 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 it, it had absolutely no effect and my wife keeps <laughs> saying to me and my fans keep saying to me why don't you get back in your lane and uh so I'm working on another uplift novel and I am mentoring young writers in two different YA um ser science awesome. fiction series for teens well, David, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. You covered everything from capitalism to communism to artificial intelligence and Hollywood. People listening, don't forget to check out David's book, Vivid Tomorrows, uh, which is a book about Hollywood tropes. He talked a little bit about that on the show today. Always a great pleasure to see you here on The Futurist. So thank you very much for coming back for this special one-year anniversary show for us. 
You guys anyway, are great. You thank guys you, are David. Great. Thank you. We were thrilled to have Katie King, Miss Metaverse, joining us for this episode as well. And Thanks for having Fred, me on. Happy to have you anytime. Thank you. Big shout out to the folks at Provoke Media who make the show possible, including Kevin Hirshon, our engineer, our producer, Elizabeth Severance, and everybody over at Provoke. Without them, the show wouldn't exist. We're also indebted to our fans and listeners and the people who promote our show. And if you like the show, be sure to tell a friend. Number one, number one futurist podcast in the world. Yes, I'm thrilled about that. Our fans and our followers make that possible. So check us out on social media. If you know of a show uh, of a guest for the show that we should be including, definitely let us know. We want to hear about that. We've had some excellent suggestions. Well, I want I want David to intro- get us uh, introduction to Kim Stanley Robinson. He's been our our big get. So if you do it, so kind, David. Send me an, send me an email with all I of will. your requests. I will. Great. Over and out. We'll see you in the future. In the future. Yes. In the future. (laughs) Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.